Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. I am so thrilled that Faraday Brand is a back of being my sponsor again, because as many of you know, because I talk about them a lot and I post about them a lot, Faraday is like my favorite clothing brand right now. It is fashionable enough that I always feel good wearing it, super comfortable, very forgiving, and just really cool. Um, so I'm so excited. They're my sponsor. You can get a discount with faritybrand.com slash Zibby, and you'll get 20% off. Again, that's faritybrand.com slash Zibby. You get 20% off. And a few other things that you should know about Faraday, aside from the fact that I'm living in their dresses for this summer, is that they're a family-run brand fueled by purpose and optimism. They make high-quality, sustainably-minded, feel-good favorites that you'll be proud to wear. I certainly am. They believe in family, quality, sustainability, and community. Summer is in their DNA, and they've created many staples for the summer, sustainably-minded with the highest of quality, comfort, and versatility, and all are made for life, which I can 100% attest to, and you should definitely go check it out. So again, faritybrand.com. Slash Zivi for 20% off. Go try it out. 
So I've already interviewed Judy Battalion before, and that's what this episode is going to be, is um, my, another conversation with Judy Battalion, who wrote The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos, which is a New York Times bestseller. But I wanted to release this conversation we had with UJA because it was really an amazing conversation and is so timely given the rise in anti-Semitism right now and really had us delve deep into her background and her family from the Holocaust. And it was really great conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. Judy was born and raised, by the way, in Montreal, where she grew up speaking English, French, Yiddish, and Hebrew. Uh, She studied the history of science at Harvard, moved to London to get a PhD in art history, worked as a curator, researcher, editor, lecturer, comic, actor, producer. I mean, she does, uh, she did everything. Um, And then eventually she wrote essays and articles for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vogue, the Forward Salon, Jerusalem Post, and many others. She also wrote a memoir called White Walls, a memoir about motherhood, daughterhood, and the mess in between, which was optioned by Warner Brothers, for whom Judy is also currently developing the TV series Cluttered. This book, by the way, The Light of Days, which also has a young version, young reader's version associated with it, uh, was optioned by Steven Spielberg's Amlin Partners, and she is co-writing the screenplay for that. Judy currently lives with her husband and three children in New York City, so please enjoy our conversation. Hi, Judy. Hello. Hello. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here with you, especially to talk about your amazing book, The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos, which I'm sure many of you who are on this Zoom saw the huge New York Times article about Judy's book, and it's a bestseller, and it's amazing. And if you haven't, you should go buy this right now while we're still on the Zoom. Anyway, welcome, Judy. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. So Judy, why don't you tell everybody in case they haven't read your book or they don't know about it yet, what your book is about and then the amazing story of how it came to be. Sure. So the book, The Light of Days is really the story of young Jewish women who were part of the organized resistance against the Nazis in Poland. Primarily, I tell the story of ghetto fighters, young Jewish women who were part of the underground in the ghettos. And I'll get into all the kinds of underground work they did, ranging from, you know, organizing soup kitchens, secret schools, secret performances, underground printing presses, writing bulletins. They used to hide them by braiding them in their hair all the way through to Jewish women who blew up Nazi supply trains, who shot Gestapo men in the head, who were ghetto fighters in ghetto uprisings, flinging Molotov cocktails and hitting Nazi tanks with explosives. I focus in particular on a group of women called the Courier Girls, or in Hebrew, they were called Keshariot, connectors. These, again, were young Jewish women, usually around 18, 19, maybe 22 years old, who would pretend to be Christian, slip out of the ghettos, and connect the ghettos. They would bring information. They would bring even current events. Jews in ghettos didn't have newspapers. They didn't have um, radios. They weren't allowed. It was young Jewish women who were transporting information, who were bringing news of the Nazi genocide, who were bringing supplies and medical supplies and money and fake Aryan documents. And 
were arming the ghetto underground, bringing back into the ghettos guns, explosives, ammunition, and also doing rescue work, helping to take Jews, children, adults out of ghettos, out of slave labor camps, and finding them hiding spots in the forests and in the cities, and then looking, checking up on them in these hiding spots. So the book sort of details all these all these various roles that women played in the organized underground in Poland during the war. Was that a long enough answer? I can I can go Keep on going. as you yeah. can see. <laughs> <laughs> also, I should have mentioned to everyone watching if you have questions about anything Judy says or is talking about or things that you would like us to address, please add them in the chat. And also, if you go to the little corner and say view, if you put it on speaker view, then the two of us will be sort of highlighted versus in the in the sea of Zoom boxes. So anyway, just some maintenance I forgot to say. Okay, so that is the story of some of the amazing, the plights of the women that you detail. Tell us about the notebook that you found, the journal research, and that whole thing of how you actually discovered all of these stories. Right. Question 1B, I forgot. So, uh, this pro- so this project began 14 years ago. Someone recently was taught, they said this was an odyssey. This was an odyssey. And it began by accident. This began by accident. I didn't set out to write this book at all. I was living in London at the time. It was a time in my life, I was 30, and I was thinking a lot about my Jewish identity, my identity, and I am the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. And I was thinking a lot about what I call the emotional legacy of the Holocaust, the way that trauma passes through generations. In my own life, I'm a very anxious person. And it was a time in my life where everything around me felt very dangerous. And I started thinking, how much has my Holocaust heritage shaped how I was perceiving and reacting to everyday dangers? This was something I wanted to explore. I was doing a lot of performance work at the time. So I decided I was going to write a performance piece and it was going to be about confronting danger. And I wanted it to have a historical kind of spine. And I was trying to think, what is an example of a Jewish woman who confronted danger? And the first one to come to mind was someone I had studied in fifth grade and her name was Hannah Senesch. Many of you might know who who she was. She was a Hungarian Jew. She was young, about 20 years old, and she made Aliyah. She moved to what was then Palestine in the 1930s. She was a poet. She wrote lyrics. You might know her songs. But during World War II, Hannah Senesch decided she wanted to fight back. She joined the Allied forces. She became a paratrooper, and she volunteered to return to Nazi-occupied Europe. She was actually caught very early on, but legend had it, she looked her executioners in the eye when they shot her. I grew up with Hannah Senesch as a symbol of Jewish courage. She was a hero. But back in 2007 in London, I I didn't want to know about Hannah Senesch, the hero. I wanted to understand Hannah Senesch, the person. Who does that? Who volunteers to return to Nazi-occupied Europe, what is the psycho- What motivates that kind of audacity, that courage, that bravery? What, what is the psychology behind that? This really was my core question. And that led me to the British Library, where I decided I wanted to find a nuanced biography about Hannah Senesch. Not, not just a hero myth, but someone who'd really studied 
her, her personality. So I typed Hannah Senish into the catalog. There were not very many books about Hannah Senish at the British Library. So I just ordered whatever they had. And one of the books that came back to me in the stack was an unusual book. It was an old book. It was dusty. It had a blue fabric cover. It was kind of worn. It had gold embossed lettering on the front. And it was in Yiddish. It was called Freuen in die Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. I always say even more unusual than the book is the fact that I speak Yiddish. So I start flipping through this book, looking for Hannah Samish, looking for this, but she wasn't there. I couldn't find her. She was only in the last few pages. In front of her, there were 150 pages of small Yiddish text with photos and bios and snippets and ex of dozens and dozens of young Jewish women who fought the Nazis and who fought them from the Polish ghettos with chapter titles like ammunition, weapons, partisan battle. And I, I, it was simply like nothing I had ever read, nothing I'd ever come across in, in any Holocaust narrative. It was so different in tone and in content to any Holocaust narrative I'd ever heard. And that's where it all began. Wow. How did you end up speaking Yiddish? Good question. I speak Yiddish for two reasons. I was really raised by my grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor from Poland, and she spoke to me in Yiddish. Yiddish is given mein ersten Sprach. I actually, it was my first language. So Yiddish was always in my, in my bones. But I also went to a very unusual Jewish day school. I grew up in Montreal. And the day school I went to, and I only found this out doing research for this book, actually came directly from Polish Jewish education philosophies. And I studied the same thing these women did. And in this school, we studied, they were secular socialists. My school was too. And we studied Hebrew and Yiddish language and literature. And our Jewish identity came from this study of, of the Jewish arts and language. And, and that's, how I, that's how I speak Yiddish. Wow. Who knew who knew Yiddish would be my cash cow? I always say, you know, <laughs> I would I would be studying, you know, one night I had a physics exam, the next night Yiddish. We're like, why am I wasting my time doing Yiddish? Who knew? Now Yiddish my whole career. There you go. So, Your grandmother must so, be spelling. She must be so, oh my gosh, over the moon. <laughs> Would you mind sharing your grandparents' story of their experience with the Holocaust? Is that okay to ask? Yes, of course. And you know, I wish I I wish I could tell my grandparents' story in as much detail as I can tell some of these stories, and I can't. And this is something that's come up in, in many times. I spoke to many of these families. It's often very difficult for families. Often we, don't, we didn't get full stories. We got snippets of the narrative, and that's what happened in, in my family. My grandfather never talked about his experience, but my grandmother did. And my grandparents, these are my mother's parents, they were married. They were living in Warsaw when Hitler invaded. And my grandmother did not look Jewish. She looked the least Jewish, the most Polish of the whole extended family. And I, I bring this up because it's something we'll get back into. It's a big theme in this book. And she, so the family sent my grandmother to wait in the, in the bread lines. This was very early in the war. And it was in these bread lines that my grandmother really started to understand what was going on. She heard what was going on around her, what soldier, what German soldiers were saying, what the Polish people around her were saying. What she, she took it in and she came home and said to my grandfather, we have to get out of here. 
it's not safe. And they fled east. My grandfather had a brother who lived near the Russian border. So they were, they went east. It's a dramatic narrative of all snippets. They hid in a convent, uh, a Nazi turned a blind eye. They swam across a river, but eventually they met up with my grandfather's brother and they were shot at. And my grandfather was injured, but his brother was killed. So they kept going east because of that. And they crossed the Russian border And out of the 300,000 Jews who survived, the Polish Jews who survived the war, 200,000 survived because they survived in Russia. They were, they were called at the time the Asians. So my grandparents were, like many of them, were put in work camps in Siberia. And they lived out the war in these work camps, which they never talked about. That's another book for me to write. It's a very underreported story. And then moved back to Poland in 45, and my mother was born along the way. Wow. They moved back to Poland. Yes. They lived in Poland for a number of years. I feel like I never hear about Jews moving back afterwards. Did, you, yeah. did they tell you anything about that? And I'm sorry, we'll talk about your book. I'm like fascinated by this. No, this is, I, I don't usually get asked these questions. So um, it's, it's good for me. They, in fact, I still have family in Western Poland. Jews were resettled in parts of Western Poland, like Nitsia, Wrocław. And my family were, 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 they went, they wanted to see who, who, if anyone was alive, they were trying to, you know, put their lives back together. In fact, they told that my mother still, she, they, my grandfather had a business. He was in the Schmatze business and they, this was one of the more prosperous periods of their lives. And, but then after a few years, they decided to leave and they went to Israel actually. And then we found, they found out that my grandmother's sister was alive. They hadn't even known for a number of years and she was in Canada and then they connected and she wanted to be with her sister. So they moved to Canada. Oh my gosh. I got goosebumps thinking about her finding out about her sister. Wow. Oh my gosh. What a story. And then your whole notion of inherited trauma. I mean, of course you're interested in this. This is like in your blood. This is your main sort of matriarchal story in your life. And I feel like the bravery of your grandmother is what you're looking to tell. I mean, that's the story of these women in one shape or way or another, not exactly what happened here, of course, but, but still that, that sort of will to survive and, and how you did it. And wow. The fact that it could become this book and you could discover this treasure trove of other role model women at the time is really amazing. Were there any of the women in the story whose, whose backgrounds paralleled more of your families or that you, you felt a particular allegiance to or just responded to on some sort of emotional level as you were researching all of their stories? That's a good question. And I, I, you, can't, you can't have a favorite child. Okay. All right. or, do, or do you? I think <laughs> I'll that, never tell. No, I'm kidding. I do not. <laughs> of course not. I think that, you know, I connected with many of these women in, in different ways. And you know, the things that connected me to these women, and that's what I really hope to bring to life for my readers, was how modern and contemporary these women were. How, how you know, they, they, what connected me to someone like Frumka Plotnitska, who, you know, had 
fled like my grandparents. She'd fled East, but she came back. She insisted on, she smuggled herself back. She, she couldn't take not being there to help her people. She went to Warsaw. She became a leader in the Warsaw ghetto. She traveled the country. She covered her Jewish features with a kerchief. She brought information. She told of the concentration camps, the death camps. She then was one of the first people to smuggle weapons into the Warsaw ghetto. She put them in a sack of potatoes. She was stationed in this town of Beijing. She ran the underground. She died fighting, shooting Nazis with a revolver. Frumka, what I related to most with Frumka was her personality, the, the stories people, her friends had written about her. I, I found letters of hers. She was very shy. She was very introverted. She had trouble maintaining friendship. She had, you know, it was those kind of detail. I, I'm shy. I have trouble with friendships. I, I felt very connected to, to her for who she was, for, the, for this. You know, many of the women that I wrote about were very educated. Frumka, Frumka was from a poor family. Many of these women were, had degrees, university degrees, Nusha Teitelbaum, degree from Warsaw University, and she shot Gestapo men in the head. Like, this is how they were talked about. They were educated. Many of them were middle class, even upper middle class. And they felt very relatable to me in, in a way that they were, I think I'd, I'd always had a perception of Polish Jews of the time as other. And I think maybe that was easier for me to handle, but actually these people were so alive on the page and so similar to, to us, I think, in so many ways. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because... Even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 
a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Moms Don't Have Time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Moms Don't Have Time. Well, your original question of what is it about the psychology of someone that makes this person versus that person choose the path of leadership really is what these women were. They were true leaders. And what did you find? Like what theories have you come up with based on all your research? What makes a a Jewish leader or a woman leader or just a leader in general? Easy question. No, not easy at all. So putting you on the spot, Judy, trying to keep you on your toes. I like the spot. So (laughs) I thought about this question a lot. And because I write about a lot of different women, it's hard to say they were all like this, they were all like that. But I've come up with a few different theories. So some of it has to do with their personalities and some of it has to do with their training. Mm -hmm. So let me start with the training. This, now we're gonna, I'm gonna rewind here a little bit and take us into Poland in the 1930s, which by the way is my new obsession period, because as I was saying, it's very progressive and contemporary and another under-discussed period of Jewish history. It's been so eclipsed by what happened after, of course, but it was such an interesting time for Jews in Poland. You know, there were 180 Jewish newspapers in Warsaw in the 1930s. It was a moment of such cultural flourishing. In this time, there were many Jewish political parties and many philosophies. And these political parties had these affiliated youth movements. And young Polish Jews were, by and large, members of youth movements, 100,000 young Polish Jews. This is from their late teens, early 20s. These youth movements were like the scouts. You can see if you see photos, they're wearing ties and things. But they were more than the scouts, I always say. These were spiritual, intellectual, physical, emotional, social training grounds for young Jews. And they used to joke even that their, their last name was their youth movement. Their identity was so tied to the movement they were part of. The movements that I write about in my book were largely the secular socialist youth movements. These are the movements that became the undergrounds in the ghettos. And they had real values. They valued Jewish pride. They valued, you know, a cultural education, similar to my education in many ways, which is another way in which I felt connected to them. They valued, they were socialists. They valued collaboration, collectivism. They read psychology, psychoanalysis. They had reading groups. They discussed They were very emotionally aware. They discussed their relationships with each other. They discussed their strengths, their weaknesses. They understood and talked about how to work together. They were also, in many regards, egalitarian. Women were leaders in these groups already. Frumka Plotnitska, who I mentioned before, was a leader of a whole group of these socialist, secular, Zionist youth movements in the Warsaw in the 30s. So women had already had leadership roles and they were really trained in these groups. They also promoted self-sufficiency, self-defense. They worked the land. They were athletic. They were taught confidence. They were taught to analyze, to plot, and to act, and to work together. They were taught to collaborate. So a lot of their 
reaction in the war, their becoming of this underground, their rebellion, their resistance activity was primed from before the war. The youth movements never thought they were going to be fighting Nazis. They, you know, they were singing songs on, 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 in Kibbutzim. Oh, many of these women even left their family homes to live in Kibbutzim that were all over Poland. I had no idea about this. So they lived in these communes. They lived together. They were really, they trusted each other. They had strong bonds. So going back to your original question, what made them act this way? A lot of it had to do with their training in these youth movements before the war and how they learned to be, to understand themselves, to feel pride, and to work together. Then there's also personality elements, and this is different for different people. But one thing, my central character is this woman named Renia. And I spoke to, Renia was a, a, a courier girl. She did missions between Warsaw and Beijing. She brought fake money. She organized rescue plans. She went to weapons dealers. She bought weapons. She taped them to her torso. She had explosives in her handbag. She was a smuggler. And Renia, when I spoke to her son a few years ago, in, you know, I interviewed him, I got all these details. And then in passing, he said to me something like, you know, she just, she wasn't the kind of person, when she looked, when she crossed the street, she wasn't the kind of person who looked left and right and left and right. She just crossed the street. And that even, it wasn't even part of the formal interview, but that really stood out to me as an anecdote that explained many of these women as I came to understand them. They had a very strong sense of instinct. They were doers they understood when to go and they went for it. By the way, I am not like this at all. <laughs> I cross the street, I'm like left and right, right and left, right and left. Then I go back, then I come again, left, left, right. So part of my fascination with these figures was that they are they are very different from me. But I, I think, I know that's just a, a small anecdote, but I actually think it says a lot about some of these women. You know, they went, they just, they crossed the street. Wow. I crossed the street without looking a lot. And I think that's a weakness. I mean, my husband literally today was like, look right and left. Look at, look out for the bikers. <laughs> and I'm going to tell him that, you know. Well, I admire you. I admire you. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a good thing. You know, it's funny how you're like, this is like my upbringing. This was like my school. This I felt like was like me. I feel like it's something that we always do with books is look for the commonalities. And what would we have done in that instance? I interviewed this author, Lisa Scottolini, I don't know if you have read her book, Eternal, about the Italian Holocaust, the Holocaust as it happened in, in Italy. But she says, like, it's very important point, which is when you're living a historic moment, you don't know that you're living in history necessarily, right? You're just, this is your life and things are slowly moving. And I feel like that's what's going on with these women, right? It's not that one day your grandmother was in the breadline and said, this is history. I can see it, you know, in the grand scope of things, I'm moving. And it wasn't necessarily that these women in their training could see that either. Like, here's my moment. This is what I've trained for. And yet it's just one day after another. And it all sort of combines to make you act in a certain way. And I guess my sort of follow-up question is how to, how do we make today's women and like our children and everybody they don't have necessarily, this is not a common training. Like I was listening to what you said. I'm like, is this like, you know, a sorority? <laughs> like, are, are the sorority girls going to be the ones who, who save us in the end? What can we do to create leaders who are, who band together all these great skills? Well, I think what's important to remember is that exactly as you said, when these groups started, these groups didn't think they were going to be fighting Nazis. 
they were, they even said they were like, we were groups of creation. We became groups of destruction. They went completely against what they were. This was not their point, but they were organized and they were self-aware and they had structures and systems. So I think what we need to think about in terms of using a lesson from this, if ever possible, is, you know, look to our organizations that, that are organized. They might not be organized for this purpose, but there are areas where, where, where there are organizations. We're here with one today. And, you know, we have to think about how we can use these organizations to work together, to collaborate. I mean, some of the issues that these the fighters had in the ghettos was that each of these youth movements, they were so politicized, they didn't get along with each other. And this happened in the Polish resistance too. There were different factions of the Polish, they didn't get along with each other. And that in certain cases, like in Warsaw, ended up delaying the creation of a mass underground. Because there was infighting, even though the Nazis was the common enemy, there was someone infighting between Jews, between Poles, between other undergrounds. So that's another thing I I hope to think about, to talk, like, stop with the infighting. Like, we need to, when, when we need to work against them, we need to really focus on coming together. And if you read the book, you can read the stories. You know, it took so long in Warsaw to get the Jewish groups united to be able to have this mass body, this mass crew to, to create the Warsaw ghettoizing. Whereas in a, a city like Vilna, they combined more easily and more quickly. They had each group had a leader. They were sort of equal leaders and it, it, it worked more quickly. So there's just little things we can, we can think about, but they really come down to communication and collaboration and, you know, the keywords that we, we talk about now too. That's true. I know you have some pictures. Would you mind showing us sort of some of the visual uh, aids? No, you don't have to. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, the problem is I won't stop. I have so many pictures. I loved doing the picture research. And some of these are from the book. Some some aren't. Does that work? Are you, see, yes, are you seeing yes. that? Yes, perfect. So let me tell you a little bit about some of these women. This picture is in the book as well. So this is one of my, one of my favorite stories is about this courier- Bella Hazan. She's the woman in the middle on the bottom. Bella Hazan was part of the youth movement. She was in the underground from the get-go. She had a good look like my grandmother. She did not look Jewish. And so she could pass. And the underground sent her to live on the outside, on the Aryan side. They sent her to the town of Grudna. And she was going to do her underground work, connecting with the Polish underground, smuggling weapons, helping to arm the, the ghettos from the outside in Grodna. So she was one of the people that had to perform Christianity 24 hours a day. So what these women did is they, they found an apartment, a room, in a, usually with a Polish family. And then she had to get a job. Of course, she had to decorate her room with crucifixes and she had, they supplied New Testaments. And then she had to get a day job because otherwise she would look suspect. Everything about your life had to, you couldn't have any suspicion at all. So she went to the town's employment office and applied for a job and they're, you know, interviewing her. And then they says, oh, I have the perfect job for you. So what's her job? Oh, you're going to be a receptionist at the Gestapo. So she becomes the secretary at the Gestapo office in Grodna. 
And she ends up doing translation work for them. She brings them tea, coffee. And what she also does is steal their documents. She steals Aryan passports, Aryan IDs, Aryan papers, Aryan stamps. And she brings this stuff with her. She makes up lies and excuses. And she brings us to Vilna, where they have a kind of Jewish underground forgery lab in the ghetto. A number of ghettos, a lot of them did this kind of forgery to make fake papers, both for the underground, for people like her, so that they could travel the country, and for Jews in general, to help rescue them, to help get them out of ghettos. It was all about the papers. And I, in my book, I go into a lot of detail about the different types of fake IDs and that kind of became obsessed with that too. Anyways, while Bella is working in this, this totally fake life, where by the way, everything had to be considered. You know, she she had to, there was a fear of falling asleep on a train. What if she mumbled in Yiddish? One had to be alert and performing. They called it, uh, it was a 24-7 life or death acting job with no intermission. And during this time that she was living this, she was also started smuggling weapons and one man in the Gestapo office develops a crush on her. They were all kind of taken by her. She was very beautiful. One man really gets into her. And he invites her to the Gestapo Christmas party. The, the, the Nazis love their Christmas parties. I read a lot about these parties. She invites her. She can't say no. That would seem suspect. And you have to go with it. You have to, you know. So that night, it happens that these other two courier girls, here we have Lanka Schneiderman and Leah Kaj- Lanka Kajabrodska and Tema Schneiderman. And they also are like master couriers. They're traveling the country with weapons and underground information. They're staying in her room that night. So she has to bring them with her to this Gestapo Christmas party. So here you have three Jewish girls dressed up, pretending to be Christian, And this photo was taken at the Gestapo Christmas party in Grodna in 1941. And this was, you know, sort of uh, an event at the party. They took portraits. This photo actually ends up getting her caught later on. But you have to read the book. I can't give the whole story away. But this is, yes, this photo is in the book too. I'm just trying to, I'm going to, do I have time to show you more? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, so this is Vladka Mead. Some of you might know her because she, after the war, she came to the U.S. and was very involved in the Jewish community and the Holocaust education community here. This is a picture of Vladka Mead in central Warsaw in 1944. She is pretending to be a Christian girl, an upper middle class Christian girl, on, on out on a day of, you know, theater lunch shopping. She is actually was a major underground operative. She had transported dynamite into the Warsaw ghetto for the uprising. She, I mean, endless missions. She, at this time, there was no more ghetto. And her job, she worked in rescue organizations. Her organization helped 12,000 Jews in Warsaw alone. And she also went out into the country. She was basically finding hiding spots for Jews, bringing, paying off the hiders, visiting them, bringing them books or paper or anything that could help them spiritually pass the time. In hiding, she would make sure that they were still safe. Sometimes the hiding spots, they call them, they got burned or they became threatened or the hider didn't want to do it anymore. She would find new spots. She would move Jews. And so they would walk around. They would talk about this. They would walk around Warsaw with their, this purse was probably filled with money at the time. And they were going around paying off hiders. She would also bring 
medics and um, trusted medics, photographers to take pictures for fake IDs. They had uh, groups and teams of people and she would help the hiders. People wrote applications to her for money if they needed funding. There's some amazing, she would go through these applications. They're like, I'm passing. I'm a dentist. I really need money to buy a new dental chair. And then she would review this and they would do budgeting. And this was all going on during the war. One more? Or? One more. One more. Okay, okay, okay. So this is another case of a courier girl. This is Shoshana Longer and Hella Schupper. Hella's on the left. They were leaders of the Krakow underground. Hella was the, I mean, master weapons courier for Krakow. And this is a picture of them in Warsaw as well in 1943 in the summer. And they're pretending to be Christian girls. Again, Hella talks in her memoirs quite a bit about borrowing the right clothes, buying the right. It had to be a floral jute handbag because that was fashionable at the time. And they were dyeing their hair. You know, a lot of discussion about getting exactly the right look. Hella tells one story where she came to Warsaw. She waited on a street corner met Mr. X from the Polish underground. They had a secret, you know, she had to say, what time is it? He folded his newspaper a certain way. She followed him several blocks. She waited all night, came out. He came out the next morning with five revolvers, four pounds of explosives and clips and clips of cartridges that she put into these designer handbags, I mean, not design, fashionable handbags that she had purchased for this, taped them to her body, put them in her pockets and got on a train and brought them back to Krakow. And in Krakow, they ended up using this weapon. They they had a number of small uprising acts. They also blew up a another Gestapo Christmas party using these weapons. And I should say Hella also attended business school before doing all this. Wow. And I could go on and on and on, but I I I, I will control myself. Don't spoil the book. Now everybody Don't spoil the book. Don't spoil the book. <laughs> Judy, I feel like we've had many discussions and every single time I learn more and end up with even more respect for you than at the beginning. Like you are so amazing what you're doing for these women, the Jewish community, the world at large, the way you write, the passion you show. It's just amazing. And it's, it's really, and the humor on top of it, it's like such a gift. And I'm sure everybody here agrees with me. So thank you for doing this. And thank you to everybody for coming. Go buy Judy's book, give it as a gift, buy the young version, buy her white walls, buy everything. And thank you. I don't know if if anyone. I just want to say thank you also. This was an amazing, fascinating conversation. Thank you to both of you. We've learned so much. It was so enriching and it was really fascinating. So thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Go buy the book. I agree. And everyone have a wonderful day and hope to see you soon. Take care. Thanks so much to Faraday Brand for being my sponsor again. Go to faritybrand.com slash Zibby for 20% off. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.